Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. Uh, I am speaking to you today uh, from my office in lovely Northbrook, Illinois. Um, and uh, today is a day why they invented air conditioning. 95 degrees, humidity that, like, you know, gets you soaked just by walking to your car. And uh, generally a nice day to look at from the inside, but not really pleasant to be on at the outside. And somehow I seem to recall this being the exact weather pattern every time the dead would come to Alpine Valley up in Minnesota, up in Wisconsin. And we'd all go up there for four days of camping. And it, of course, would be the hottest four days of the summer. Um, having said all of that, uh, we're about to be joined by my partner in crime, Jim Marty of the uh, Bridge West uh, group. And um, uh, Jim's going to join us right now. So all of the listeners are aware. Uh, Jim going above and beyond the call today. He's out on the East Coast, and I'll let you fill. I'll let him fill us in on the details in a car. So if you catch a little bit of background noise from Jim, it's just because he's he's working and talking and, and doing it all at the same time. Jim, how are you? Very good, very good. I'm uh, in a car going 65 miles an hour, but I am not driving. Thank goodness. Um, good. I'm here in Massachusetts, I'm on an eight day road trip uh, visiting clients in Massachusetts and Maryland, and. Um, give you an update uh we'll probably talk some prices today um you've got some new numbers for us and i've got some numbers to share too as you probably know uh colorado is seeing a big surge in prices and even though we've had strong cultivation for over 10 years we're starting to see spot shortages on the market really is that due to an increase in consumer demand or is that because people just aren't growing as much as they used to no, uh, Colorado's been setting a record three months in a row now for sales. And uh, we've we actually seen uh, wholesale prices for top shelf uh, cross. Now they're above $3,000 a pound in wholesale. And our retail clients are raising retail prices correspondingly. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that are working from home from COVID. Uh, some of them have extra unemployment money in their pockets. Uh, so seen absolute record sales in Colorado. Fantastic. Um, strong in Maryland as well. And uh, in Massachusetts, they're selling an eighth of an ounce for $65. Well, I got to tell you, in Illinois, they're selling an eighth of an ounce for $60, um, you know, and a gram of concentrate for $60. So, you know, for us, that's just standard pricing here for right now. And, um, you know, the it, it gets better, I imagine, as soon as we get a few more people uh, into the marketplace, so we get a little bit more of a supply. Um, but here, talk about numbers, Jim. The, the Illinois numbers for July came out. In the month of July, uh, the Illinois Adult Use Program combined sold 1,270,000 items. First time they've crossed the million threshold of items sold in a month. They had total sales setting another record here of 60,956,000. 
of which 44 million was in-state. But here's the big number. Over 16 million was from out-of-state customers. And we've talked for a long time about one of the things that really makes Illinois unique is its location right here in the heart of the Midwest, surrounded by states, none of whom yet have adult use programs. Uh, and only one of them, really Missouri, which has an act, well, and they're not even totally up and running yet, uh, a medical program. Um, you know, and, and uh, these numbers are just outstanding. Again, you know, coming at a time when a lot of things are shut down and people are not venturing out as much as they otherwise would. And we see these numbers. But here's the thing, Jim, these numbers are just part of a national trend. And I uh, had some time yesterday and was able to go online and pull down some data from Marijuana Business Daily, who again is always uh, great in terms of the uh, uh, information they supply about this industry. Um, and, it, and I saw some statistics and I have to tell you, Jim, it took me back. I know you and I have talked about it on the show and other times. Uh, the first time we met was back in 2013 in Seattle at the second ever MJ Biz Conference. They had about 700 people, and we were all in the um, uh, clubhouse of a racetrack just south of Seattle. Uh, and everybody sat in one room and listened to all the presentations. And we all went downstairs and saw the five or six exhibitors. But somebody put a, 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 a slide on the screen that talked about the number of uh, dollars on uh, marijuana sales in the country, both black market and, and legal. And at the time, you know, the legal, if you did a, a chart, was so close to the baseline that you couldn't even see what color it was. There wasn't enough space to see the color. And they were projecting things on 2016 and 2020 and 2025 and these numbers that just seemed uh, absolutely out of control. And in fact, uh, what we learned was now what we see is that in 2012, uh, it was all medical being sold and, and nationwide, it was about 1.2 to $1.3 billion of sales. By 2016, medical was up to 2.2 to 2.78 billion, but adult use was now on the scene and that was pulling in just under $2 billion a year. Now we get to 2020. The numbers are even more amazing. Medical is now up to 5.8 to $7.2 billion a year and adult use is 9.75 to 11.90 billion dollars a year. What's significant, Jim, about 2020 is that adult use for the first time has passed medical in terms of legal sales in this country. And what's amazing about that is that we have 37 states with medical programs, but only 12 states with adult use programs. What do you think about that? Yes, uh, I agree with all of that. It has been an amazing ride. And in reality, the cannabis industry in the United States is over a hundred billion dollars a year it's just that it's still the majority of it is still on the illicit market and you and i have been part of this cosmic change this uh, galactic shift excuse me from uh, the illicit market to the legal market and that's going on you know colorado alone is going to do well over two billion dollars this year um Sales are very strong in Massachusetts. Again, it's got adult use and it's surrounded by states, Connecticut, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, that do not have adult right. use. So, uh, but yeah, that's my, my goal in the next few years or my dream, I guess, is to see the legal cannabis market catch up with beer at $110 billion a year. That would be something, wouldn't it? And and I have to tell you, you know, just looking at the way these numbers have gone, there's no reason to believe it won't happen. 
And, you know, it, it, as we say, welcome to the party, the more the merrier. Something else to keep in mind is that this fall, uh, in this next round of elections, of course, everyone's primarily focused on the presidential election and understandably so, but not to get lost in the shuffle is that five states have marijuana ballot measures that are going to be presented to their citizens. Arizona's finally voting on adult use. Mississippi's going to be voting on medical. Montana, uh, which for a while was big and then had some problems during the Obama administration uh, in the uh, uh, pre-coal memorandum days um, and is now uh, making a bounce back on the medical side. They have adult use on the uh, ballot coming up, as does New Jersey. Um, and New Jersey wasn't able to get it done last time. Although what's interesting about New Jersey here, Jim, is that New Jersey tried to do it legislatively and wasn't able to do it. And now they're going to try and do it um, uh, with a, a popular vote election and uh, see if they can do it that way. And then finally, South Dakota, uh, they actually have two ballot measures, one for medical and one for adult use. Um, and of course, I'm sure from South Dakota's perspective, uh, as we all know, they just uh, recently ended the uh, annual Sturgis motorcycle rally out there where they get well, probably half, you know, 500,000 people at least, um, if not more, uh, you know, who are all coming out and, and drinking and just having a good old time. And by God, if they had uh, adult use marijuana in South Dakota, that would be something. Yeah. And I believe uh, Mississippi is going to have a medical marijuana ballot initiative. Yep. That's right. So, and so this is all great to see, right? Because as these states uh, bring in their programs, whether adult use or medical, and you know, while we we're very always happy to see adult use, medical is great too because it's getting the foot in the door in a state and ultimately will lead to adult use in one kind or another. Um, but especially, you know, to see a state like Mississippi, uh, which is, you know, typically, you know, portrayed as a very, very conservative state, uh, you know, to, to be opening up and accepting medical, which, you know, to my thinking is almost more of a, uh, a big move for a state like that than adult use, because they're, they're actually acknowledging by going medical uh, that there are medical benefits to cannabis. Um, and, and that's great to see. You know, it strengthens the industry overall. Um, you know, and, and, and the more it spreads out over this country, uh, eventually even the feds will have to, uh, uh, recognize the fact that popular demand is so great, uh, schedule one just doesn't make sense anymore on any level. And although I know you and I have talked about, uh, you know, the, the benefits of the industry, uh, with schedule one, uh, uh, rating on, on the Controlled Substances Act versus being descheduled altogether, um, you know, it, it's still going to be one of those things that, that people are going to talk about, except, and you and I mentioned this at the top of the show, or, or right before we hopped on, um, that, you know, this is, this is a show about marijuana, this is a show about the Grateful Dead, and, uh, you know, we try to leave all of the politics and, and all of that aside, but uh, I took note of the fact that, uh, you know, think what you want of the Democrat National Convention, but they didn't mention marijuana. And I was a little surprised and disappointed that it wasn't really mentioned in any meaningful way. Um, and although uh, the Republicans still have a couple of nights to go, I'd be very surprised if we hear any of the speakers uh, who are still to come using their time to talk about marijuana. And, you know, given where we are in the industry and given where things are going and the bilateral uh, passage of this uh, SAFE Act in the House of Representatives, it would be refreshing to hear one politician in either party or both parties or anywhere just get up on stage and say, look, with all of this other stuff, let's not lose sight of the fact 
that there's an industry growing out there right now that's unlike anything else this country has ever seen. Yes, um, and from my point of view, I am just fine with them not mentioning marijuana. I prefer to fly under the radar and get the fix that we want. Uh, definitions are very important. Um, Harris talks about decriminalization. Um, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean descheduling? Uh, does that mean uh, the States Act, which would keep it illegal at the federal level and uh, make it uh, give it to the states to regulate cannabis as they choose? Um, yep. So there's a lot of unknowns. As, people, as our listeners have heard me say many times, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Well, I think that that's true. And, uh, you know, likewise, you know, the, the, your, your, your comments are all very well taken. And uh, they serve as a, uh, a very effective, you know, rebuttal to me lamenting the fact that it's not being mentioned. And, and maybe the answer is that those of us in the industry right now are a whole lot better off with it not being mentioned at all and just leave us alone and, and let us do our thing. It's, it's working out OK for us on the state levels right now in the states that we're in. The federal government has done a pretty decent job under both, you know, Democratic and Republican administrations, leaving the industry alone. Um, and it doesn't really look like there's any natural enemies out there, uh, you know, that are going to come swooping in and uh, and cause the kind of trouble that would, you know, demand or require legalization. So, um, you know, while there's certainly benefits, banking and otherwise that come with it, uh, if all of a sudden the doors are open to the uh, gigantic industry of the world, uh, a lot of people who now play a role in the industry might very quickly find themselves on the outside looking in. Correct, as I've said on the show in the past, <clears throat> which is which is the first federal agency that's going to be knocking on their cannabis business door? The FDA, uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Sure. Uh, you that soup of federal agencies, and then you've got big alcohol, big tobacco. Well, you know, Jim, the, the nice thing is we don't even have to uh, uh, imagine or pretend to imagine because we saw what happened with hemp and CBD when the farm bill was passed. You know, the FDA couldn't get to the microphone fast enough to say, hey, welcome to regulatory jurisdiction, guys. You know, you're no longer uh, on the criminal side, but now you're on the regulatory side. And that's, you know, almost brought a halt in some places to CBD infused food items uh, because uh, the FDA has finally said we're going to get involved. And, uh, you know, they're making life difficult for everyone without even trying to do it. Um, and there's no doubt that once we get uh, the feds involved, uh, we do run into those problems, um, but you know, I, I, there's there's a few of us uh, th that wouldn't be so sad to see uh, 280 go away. Um, although I do recognize that some of us make a living off of 280, so there's a lot to be said for that too. <laughs> yeah, 280 um, makes it very difficult to have a profit, but it, it can be done. It's a very narrow path to profitability, uh, but it can be done. Yep. Uh, there's not a lot of room for error. Um, recent months, I've been hired quite a bit to do profitability consulting. Um, yep. In the last few days with a Maryland client, and uh, here on the East Coast, it seems like um, infused products and edibles are higher percentage of sales than out in Colorado, where I'm from. I was at a sophisticated mm -hmm. kitchen, and they make a 35 milligram gummy. Um, and I said, wow, 35 milligrams, that's pretty strong. And the lady said, no, you can cut them in quarters. We, we put little dotted lines on them. But uh, wow. 10,000 of these a week, and they're all pre-sold. Okay. 
Well, and, and you know, while all this is going on, I've been working with people who uh, are all taking a very strong interest in the Oklahoma market all of a sudden. And uh, just when I thought that the Oklahoma market was as oversaturated as it could be, uh, there's people who think that there's more room to be had there and they want to go diving in there. And quite frankly, the prices have gone up in Oklahoma, which I thought was pretty amazing. So really, any way you, you turn and you look at it right now, it's uh, it's just pretty incredible to see. Yes, we have clients in Oklahoma. Very interesting model in that uh, most of the clients we consult with there are very small. I call them boutique cultivations of about five or ten thousand square feet. Uh, no real big operators, you know, fifty or a hundred thousand square feet of cultivation right now. Right. Uh, but the, the small guys are producing and doing quite well. Yep, it's great to see. It's great to see. Um, well. Turning to uh, some of the other things that we like to talk about, uh, and I hope that you guys have your radio squarely set away on uh, XM Radio, Grateful Dead, or the Fish Channel, because it can take you many, many miles and keep you happy. Um, here's something, Jim, and, and I have to tell you, not that I consider myself, you know, the the leading authority on the dead, far from it, um, far, far from it. Um, although I do like to think that I know more than the average bear when it comes to uh, stuff about the Grateful Dead. And what I found as I've gotten older and read up on the dead and seen the movies about them and heard the stories from people is you kind of get to the point where you figure you've heard just about every big thing that ever could have happened for the Grateful Dead one way or another. Maybe you don't know the whole story, you only know part of the story. But there's very few things I find about that I, you know, that I, I learn these days about the Grateful Dead where I say, wow, I never knew that before. However, that's why we have our wonderful producer, Dan Humiston, who is always scouting the airwaves for new and interesting tidbits and sent something over to us the other day that really kind of knocked my socks off. Um, and it's this little fact that uh, in April of 1970, uh, Miles Davis one night open for the Grateful Dead in San Francisco. And I just hear that and I, 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 I'm amazed because we've all heard of the Allman Brothers playing with the dead and we've all heard of uh, Stephen Stills playing with the dead and all sorts of people playing with Branford Marsalis and his, you know, world famous eyes of the world from 1989 Nassau Coliseum with the Grateful Dead. Um, and yet in 1970, one night in April at uh, Bill Graham's Fillmore West in San Francisco, it just so happened that, you know, the worlds of Miles Davis and the Grateful Dead collided and he wound up opening for them. And uh, there's a great article and, and uh, maybe Dan can post the link on our Web page and other people can come and read it. And there's a, a cutout of uh, uh, one of the tunes uh, that uh, Miles Davis performed, one of his numbers called Directions. Um, and you can listen to that. but. Uh, the story is fascinating about, you know, how it came together and uh, how Bill Graham, uh, who was, you know, their promoter for life, uh, was smart enough to figure out that the dead fans who were really into, you know, long drawn out improvisational jams would also dig the same thing coming from a, uh, a blues trumpeter. And uh, from Miles Davis's perspective, you know, he had always played nightclubs and, and, and relatively, uh, you know, smaller venues like that for the really hardcore jazz fans. And here he was coming out, you know, 
playing, as he called it, for a bunch of really spacey high white people <laughs> um, who were walking around and talking. But then they stopped and they started listening to the music and um, talks about how he uh, started out from some of his works and sketches of Spain and went into his more well-known bitches brew stuff. And he said, it, you know, just blew them out. And he said after that, anytime he would come to San Francisco to play gigs, he would see a lot of white people. Uh, showing up at the gigs and he realized that it must have come from that and and I'm going to ask you in a second Jim but I checked with all of my deadhead friends and you know there's some of these guys who are like you know my deadhead gurus who saw the dead three or four hundred times and you know hung out with the roadies and everything and not one of them had heard about this uh they you know in, in any kind of a meaningful way were, were you aware that that Miles and the dead had shared a stage I was not although I'm not surprised because um, having read Phil's book and some books on Jerry, um, they would go and see Miles Davis every chance they could, especially when he came to San Francisco. Uh, Phil would load up and Phil would drag them all down to see Miles Davis, and they'd all walk out of there very impressed. So it's no surprise. Um, but I don't believe they ever actually uh, jammed together, at least in front of an audience. You're correct. And that's uh, – uh, although the story doesn't say so conclusively, I would assume that if they had actually uh, – and you're right. I misspoke when I said shared a stage. Shared a stage in terms of opening act and, and second act as opposed to playing together. Uh, there, there's nothing here that suggests that they did play any music together that day, which is really too bad. And in fact, it, it may have been – it was an incredibly lost opportunity that they apparently never had a chance uh, – to do again, but you're right about Garcia and Lesh. And in fact, uh, at, Davis was quoted at the time as saying that uh, he learned about how Jerry loved jazz, and uh, Miles Davis found out that Jerry loved uh, Miles Davis's music and had been listening to it for a long, long time. And um, then there's a great quote at the very end of the story from Phil Lesh that I think really kind of sums it up. And, and, and Phil's quoted as saying, as I listened, leaning over the amps with my jaw hanging agape, trying to comprehend the forces that Miles was unleashing on stage, I was thinking, what's the use? How can we possibly play after this? With this band, Miles literally invented fusion music. In some ways, it was similar to what we were trying to do in our free jamming, but ever so much more dense with ideas and seemingly controlled with an iron fist, even at its most alarmingly intense moments. And... Uh, you know that's such that's such Phil Lesh talking, but you know only he could come up with a way like that to describe a guy like Miles Davis, who was uh, a, a monument for his time. And you know that's one of the things that I also love is you know when the guys who I idolize in music, guys like the Grateful Dead, are talking about the people that they idolize. And you know how much better than that can it be? No, I, I agree, and of course that all winds its way through the Fish family and the Fish Jam music, which. I've been listening to quite a bit while I've been on the road when my cars, rental cars have serious radio. Sure. I think I mentioned on the last 1998 being one of the favorite um, fish uh, yep. the guest DJs are up on uh, the fish radio channel. Um, and uh, of course, Frank Zappa was a big influence on Trey. Yeah, that's right. I've heard him talk about that as well. And, um, I think Frank Zappa, you know, was probably a big influence on just about anybody who played a guitar around that time. And, and I know that, you know, we've talked about it and I, you know, not don't want to be one of those guys who revisits old stories over and over again, but in 1984, seeing, uh, the Jerry Garcia band and Frank Zappa play together, um, at the UIC pavilion in Chicago was also, uh, 
a pretty amazing night of music. And at first we were all bummed because they had flipped a coin backstage and that night Garcia opened. So we played a shorter set. But by the time Zappa got going, you know, we couldn't get enough of him, and uh, we were happy to get as much of him as we did. And it was just tremendous. But uh, it's great to see that, that kind of appreciation. And, but especially something like this, you know, because it's almost it's almost like two different generations. You know, it would be like if uh, if a guy like Don Drysdale got to pitch to uh, Ken Griffey Jr. You know, after having pitched to his father or something. You know, you have one generation reach over into the into the next one and, and just touch, just like that. And not necessarily a passing of the torch because the Dead weren't a, a full jazz band, but you know, certainly two. Uh, amazing uh, musical performers whose paths crossed once and the folks who were there got very, very lucky. So uh, I would recommend, uh, if, well, you got, go ahead. I said you got one on me because I never got to see Frank Zappa before he passed away. Well, you know, we could, we could do that one day too. We could all talk about, you know, the top five we were lucky to see in the top five that we missed because, you know, they're all out there and, um, uh, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a grass is always greener, right? I, I always used to sit around and I love Brent Midland and I think Brent Midland, it was, was a, just a tremendous, tremendous keyboardist, but I always wondered how great it would have been to have heard Keith Gauchow or even go back further and Tom Constantin and Pigpen playing the organ. And then when I went and visited my younger brother, when he was in college in the 1990s, after Brent had passed away and all of his buddies who were late blooming deadheads by that point would all look at me and say, oh, my God, you got to hear Brent Midland, how lucky you were. And you realize that, you know, look, it's it's just as a matter of when you're born and and when it falls for you and, and who you get to see, you know. But um, uh, Miles Davis and the Dead would have been great. And back to Frank Zappa for a second. We did listen to a lot of back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, for our listeners who uh, maybe want to get pointed in the right direction to check out Frank Zappa. Um, some of the songs I remember from the 70s were Pajama People. Remember yep. that song? Sure. And then going to Montana, I'm going to be a dental floss cowboy. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that that was the thing about Zappa was that, you know, his his, his lyrics were irre- irreverent. Uh, oftentimes he was poking fun at you know, groups of people. He did a teenage Jewish princess song, as I recall, that got a lot of airplay for a while. And, um, but he did it in such a way uh, that there was never a terrible backlash. Although um, a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, but some people may be too young to remember uh, his very famous showdowns with Tipper Gore. When uh, uh, Al Gore was the vice president and Tipper, his wife, uh, was part of a commission to make uh, musicians put warning labels on their records for sexually explicit lyrics. And Zappa really took off after her. He was a true free speech kind of guy. Uh, say what you want to say. And if you don't like it, don't listen. Um, and those were, you know, looking back on that now and thinking about it, that was really hysterical that, you know, uh, Frank Zappa waded his way into public politics and, uh, you know, started taking shots at somebody like Tipper Gore. That was really funny. Yes, I believe the name of the song that he produced with his daughter when she was a teenager. Was it Valley Girls? Yes, correct. Right. There was a Valley Girls song, too, where they they all did the Valley speak. And, yeah. uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, kids all around the country because they got onto FM radio 
we're all doing that whole valley. Hey, let's go to the mall. I, I can't even do it. But uh, um, it, it, sure, that was very funny, too. And, and, and you know, and, and some of his lyrics got a little uh, sexually suggestive in a way that uh, probably would never find any uh, playtime on uh public radio but at the same time where you know he, he could get away with it though jim i say because uh, he was probably you know one of the top five maybe even you know top 10 for sure maybe top five guitarists who ever played i mean he was musically exceptionally exceptionally trained and talented you know kind of like in the phil phil lesh mode of somebody who's not just a rock guitarist but you know can write symphony orchestra presentations yes well we're coming to the end of our time slot and we are I would encourage all our listeners to ask your friends to listen to our podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Every episode we've ever recorded is on my company's website, uh, the Bridge West Seat Firm website. Uh, you can listen to it or other locations that, um, Larry, you might have some that you can plug. Yeah, sure. The Hoban website is always a great place to find the show. And uh, I know that we have a new app. Um, but since I'm uh, very technically challenged when it comes to apps, uh, I would just tell people to go to our website and hopefully Dan will have something there that explains about the apps. Uh, but it is kind of cool that we're, you know, from my perspective, at least that we're, we're big time baby when we have an app. I love that. Uh, before we go today, Jim, I just have to do a very, very quick shout out to a Hoban colleague of mine, Garrett Graff. Garrett is the managing partner at the Hoban Law Firm and uh, probably one of the top hemp attorneys in the entire country, uh, cannabis all around, but uh, has really, really made a name for himself in hemp. And uh, I'm giving him a shout out because either just yesterday or this morning, uh, he and his wife just had their second baby, a little boy named Dylan Graff. So Garrett, congratulations. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I don't remember your daughter's name, but now she has a younger brother, Dylan. And uh, hopefully you guys will be up to the task of man-to-man -man defense there with the kids. So having said that, Jim, why don't you take us home? Very good. Over and out from uh, sunny and warm and green Massachusetts. And um, over and out from Jim Marty here. Bye, Jim. Have uh, safe travels out there. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Uh, this is Larry Mishkin signing out from Chicago. Have a good week, everyone, and stay safe. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.